Rock from. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. So speaking of formal, Josh Painter, welcome to Africa Jam. We're really yeah, happy that you can <laughs> hang out with us. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome. So we were putting a pin in something before we started recording, which is that I was asking you, Josh, uh, about when you started studying Taoism. Um, and it sounds like you've been in this inquiry for a substantial amount of time at this point. Is that fair? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that what's interesting about that question was when, as I sort of assess my own answer to that, because I get asked that a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm asked that in the context of, in the context of that question actually changes where here it happens to be a podcast with interesting peers. I have also had that question in China in the uh, headquarters of the Taoist Association. So these quest, the, you know, wow. the answer to that question is something that really can be one thing in one uh, place and another in another because the acceptability of my real answer is probably not sufficient for them in that, in that way. Right. Um, and so uh, the real answer is that I have been studying Taoism since I was a teenager in the 80s. And that, I have to qualify, and that sounds corny because everyone wants to do that. Oh, I've been doing this for my whole life. So I don't want to suggest that what I do now is akin to what I was doing then, because that would be unfair both to, uh, for the sake of honesty, but also in, for, in all fairness to the tradition, because to suggest that what I was doing in the 1980s as a, teenager in the New York hardcore scene looking for spirituality is not exactly what I'm doing now. Right. Um, uh, but having said that, though, um, that that is when it began. And it only began with two texts, and that was the Lao Tzu and the Zhuangzi. Both of them were on my hippie parents' bookshelf. And the translation was the Jia Fu Feng Jane English translation for both of those texts. And so it began then. Um, but it, my grandmother uh, was a, is, is a student of a very famous lineage of Chinese painters, and she had been going to China in the 80s. And so that was actually very helpful in the development of my studies. And she sent me to my uncle's house in Singapore um, one summer, in 1990, it was supposed to be 89, but Tiananmen was that summer um, because part of the trip was spending time in China. And that trip uh, erased a lot of the, um, some of the more innocent opinions I had about China and Asia in general and things like that. Uh, innocent, I suppose, could even be called um, racist. Mm -hmm. and, and so... Uh, it was at that point that I decided I had to go back and that I had to speak the language and that I had to be a little more um, alert and aware. And so I went, I started college in 91 and I declared myself as a Taoist slash Chinese language major. Um, and that's where the, the, it, this work actually began in earnest was 1991. Mm. Um, and that was 
initially under the tutelage of two really important mentors of mine, Patricia Koretsky, who's a, a an Asian art historian, and Lisa Rafels, who is a comparative. She at her her specialty was sort of Taoism, but in, in reference to um, she did a lot of comparative work with ancient Greek philosophy. Hmm. So those are the it was there that and and language studies, and then I went to college in China and. And then the rest we can talk about. But yeah. the, then the journey gets really rocky. Tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so when you decide that you're studying Taoism, uh, the reality is that you're initially most likely studying some white person's estimation of the tradition. And uh, generally... Those opinions fall into two camps. One is the scholar or the academic who is really looking at Taoism in a very particular way and as an outsider. Um, there are a few exceptions. Michael Sasso and Christopher Shipper were the main exceptions to that rule um, because they were ordained Taoists themselves. Um, and then the other side is the Qigong practitioner um, from the 60s and 70s or the 80s who decided that Taoism is to be found within some energetic form in the body. And whatever that means, I don't really know, but that the suggestion is, is definitely uh, has, is made and it's reiterated in, in, in that community perpetually. And so looking in either of those places, um, I struggled because I felt like those couldn't be neither of those could be the whole story, um, which is to say either the loose hippie-like physical practitioner or the um, very uh, tight-lipped academic. I knew there was some something in between the, the looseness and the, t and the tension. Um, so I was reading something by Nathan Sivan, and he there was it might have been in an introduction to a book that he did in uh, back then called um, Traditional Chinese Medicine in Modern China or something like that. I don't remember. It was part of a college class I was taking, and Nathan actually came to to my class to discuss this book, and he said something like, "Because Taoism is essentially lost." Um, we have to find it in its encrypted form within Chinese medicine. And so, he, because the, there was this opinion back then that Taoism in modern China was gone. It had been dismantled by the Communist Party, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And that we had to find vestige of his, vestiges of it in textual form and in the places where it had been embedded within other practices. And his opinion in this one sentence that I heard, it might not, not even be his opinion, but he said it in a sentence or wrote it somewhere, I don't remember, was that it was encrypted within Chinese medicine. And I thought, well, that's where I'll look. Mm. And so I went to Chinese medicine school, and I didn't find it there, clearly. And um, Where'd you go to school, Josh? I went to PCOM in New York. At the time, it was PIOM, yeah, the Pacific Institute. It was before its accreditation. Yeah. Um, it was small. It was lovely. And I had a great time. And I spent a lot of time in the library. They had a, a, a 
they had a significant collection of Chinese books for some reason. I think Kevin Ergel brought them in. I don't remember who did that. Um, but it was, it was enough to really give me an opportunity to find whether this was true, because in the coursework, of course, you don't find Taoism in Chinese medicine schools. And the ones that purport to do so, I think, are problematic as well. Mm. That's, uh, this is just my crazy opinion. Yeah. Um, but, we like crazy uh, opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I did spend a lot of time perusing two books in particular, the Huangdi Neijing and also the Bunsao Gangmu. Mm. Um, and I, to this day, I still see the validity of um, Sivan's statement that some of Taoism is encrypted in Chinese medicine because there are particular features in those two texts that really do carry part of the, 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 the scintilla of the, the spirit of Taoism within them, even though it's not, they don't contain religious pra- praxis and all of that stuff. I mean, that's that you have to find in, in other places, but they definitely do have um, a lot of opportunity. They offer a lot of places to have the opportunity to witness some of the things that we have in the Taoist tradition um, encrypted in them. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. A clarifying question about that. <clears throat> so, or it's adjacent to that. So you mentioned that when you were a teenager in the hardcore scene, the first mm-hmm. exposure you had to Taoism was the Lao and the Shuanza. Yeah. <clears throat> um, do you feel like the way that Taoism is encoded or presented in those texts is rhymes with is the same as, is resonant with, or is substantially different than your experience of the way that Taoism is encoded in the Wangdi Neijing and the Bensao. Josh, can I ask you real quick, can you take your mic? Because it's like rubbing against your lapel. There you go. And just like fit it in between your... How about if I wrap it around this button here and keep it floating? (laughs) Yeah. Or I can take the shirt off that has the lapel getting in the way. Either, either way, let's see. I just because I don't want it to be like. Yeah, yeah, no. You're saying I, something I really interesting. Oh, that's perfect. Don't I think that's that that perfect. Okay, sorry. Okay. No, no, no. Please, we, we, yeah. this there's is no not... point otherwise, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, what are we doing? Yeah. Let's have a talk and have lots of crazy noise in the background. Exactly. Um, sorry. So, you, you can throw the line again if you need, but um, yeah, Tyler, can you ask that question again? Yeah, I'm curious to hear. I'll just even make it more general. Your thoughts on so you you began by saying that your first exposure to Taoism was when you were a teen in the hardcore scene in New York, and you read the Schwanza or translations, right? A specific mm-hmm. set of translations of the Schwanza and the Laozi. Yeah. And now we're talking about the Wangdi Neijing and the Bensao. And so yeah. I'm wondering, do you have a sense for whether the way that Taoism is um, encoded or expressed uh, in these texts, does it feel like it rhymes, like it's the same, similar, resonant, really different? Um, you know, or if that question is not actually a particularly useful question we can discard it but i'm i'm just curious having some level of familiarity with at least three of those texts the very marginal level with the bensao um, i have my own kinds of thoughts and questions but they're really coming from a place that's not particularly well grounded to be perfectly honest 
um, because I, you know, my experience of Taoism is primarily filtered through reading that I have done on my own and experiences within the Chinese medical community. Um, yeah, those are the general categories for yeah. most people. Um, well, you know, it's a great question, and it, and it really does point at one of the um, special qualities of Taoism, and that is that, no, those books like the Laozi and the Zhuangzi and then the Bunsao Gangmu and the Huangdi Neijing, they're all, all four of them actually offer up very distinct facets of the tradition. Though there may be a commonality and some deep thread in their, in their warp, all of the visible um, aspects of that are um, uh, not very similar at all. And you, even the Laozi and the Zhuangzi, as much as they are akin in their temporal vicinity and, um, uh, and that they're both primordial Taoist texts, they do present very different ways of thinking, whereas the, the Zhuangzi deals with this anti-logic and these very sophisticated linguistic games. I said the Zhuangzi, right? Um, the Laozi is. is a very different, more direct... Um, text and the, the issue with both of them, though, is that they can both be read uh, through the lens of different hermeneutics, and so that's an issue that is uh, that plagues um, the Western world of people who are interested in Taoism because the commentarial tradition on the Laozi, for instance, just that one text, is so. Um, diverse that you can read it as anything you want to read it as. The text itself doesn't suggest a central meaning um, in any way that we are aware of because we don't know what Laozi meant. What we, what we have, though, is many generations of people who thought they knew what he meant, and they've expressed that in really erudite ways that make sense, but they could be completely at odds with each other. Two commentaries could have a very differing opinions on one passage. And so it's a very wild place, the Laozi. And that's what's so special about texts like those, the Laozi Zhuangzi. Um, they, um, uh, they offer the potential for um, prospecting and mining. Um, and uh, their meaning is not so solidified and, and monolithic. And so they, they are very rich resources that can be continually um, reinvestigated. The Bunsao Gangmu, for instance, and the Neijing, these are different because they're within the framework of medicine. So for instance, in the Huangdi Neijing, one of the great Taoist passages is the initial question from Qi Bo to Huangdi, which is basically, why do people nowadays live to 50 and they do so in decrepitude when in the olden days the uh, gu or the ancient people um, lived to 100 with with vigor and so the answer is that those old people knew the Tao, yin yang and the way to make the calculations and so that is a very specific reasonable um, answer that we can latch on to and find, you know, direct meaning from that type of answer. It's not cryptic and you can't, there's no hermeneutic that is, you know, there's not a variety of choices in how to interpret that. Um, and the Bunsao Gangmu, 
I do a lot of work. I teach in a, f- a few doctoral programs around the country on on that on certain selections from that text. And what I what I was interested in um, in uh, while in my time in PCOM and spending time in the library looking through that was that the weird um, uh, what do you call it obsolete substances. And encrypted in those obsolete substances, I found that there was a, a worldview hiding inside of those obsolete substances that was not part of, for instance, Bensky. Mm-hmm. Because these things are weird, like taking the hair of someone who has run away from home and winding it counterclockwise to make them return. That's an herbal substance. That's a medicinal usage it's just one that goes beyond the realm of taste temperature nature channels entered function indication and so in that reading something weird like that it made me have a different it made i had to change what i estimated chinese medicine to be Mm. um so i'd spend all of my time memorizing functions and indications with no analysis of their meaning and then i would look at herbs like that where you have to look at its meaning and how what the worldview of the people creating a medicinal like that how they thought the world worked um and there are other ones too and so i spend a lot of time teaching on that right now i have a a a great time doing it because it's something that even now in in um, chinese medicine we avoid that topic because it, it goes into the realm of whatever magic or whatever, and people get uncomfortable in that seat. And so uh, I'm not uncomfortable with it and I love to talk about it. So it, it really, it offers a, um, a view of Chinese medicine that we've been complaining for generations about its non-existence, which is to say that old trope of uh, the communists ruined everything, that thing. Mm. Um, which of course isn't true because this type of medicine was, they were actively, um, since the Ming dynasty, there has been an active attempt to eradicate this type of, this way of thinking from the Taoist Academy, I mean the uh, Chinese Medicine Academy. Mm-hmm. So the, the communist situation was, was, it was all, the deed was done by the time that, that came about. So, um, but it's all in there, these amazing, so, and Taoism as a practice includes all of these features, these very deep um, uh, cosmological, philosophical features, and then also these very practical, magical features. And that's the thing that, that um, really keeps me moving along with my studies in it, is that uh, it it keeps on surprising me, which is to say Taoism is a, is a never ending resource. Mm. <clears throat> so how might you, if you were going to describe the worldview of folks that would understand that in order to potentially encourage a runaway to return home, we would need to wind the hair counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, uh, since it sounds like you teach on this quite a bit, like what's, what's the way that you describe a worldview that somebody might have who would orient to reality in that direction? Yeah. So 
we i i say it like this that there is a there's a great effectiveness to what i call domesticated chinese medicine and that 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 fully domesticated model would be the kind that you can utilize in a hospital because we have studies on how those herbs work or whatever then there's the wild model which is that Chinese medicine operates on principles that have nothing to do with constituents in the plant itself that are discernible through biochemical means that the very environment, which is to say you can grow something in a greenhouse, but it has none of the qualities that it would have if it survived winters or lived next to a rock or next to a river or in shade or in speckled light. Those are all of the qualities that are imbued in this thing. And so I think that, the wild version of Chinese medicine is what I'm most interested in. The domesticated version is not very interesting to me at all. Um, I really just, uh, I have no interest in, um, we've all memorized all of the stuff. It's, it's necessary to get through school and to get your, to go through licensing examinations and all of that. So that's where we all have that. Um, and yet, we're all dissatisfied when we start to practice with, with that as our main um, as our main aperture into the medicine. Because immediately, obviously, how could that be satisfying? Um, because to memorize something is just, the reason we memorize it is so that we can prove our knowledge of, of that material to a governing body. But the reality is, though, is that memory is faulty. It's just extracorporealized text, uh, and so, or intracorporealized text. And so text is the extracorporealization of someone else's memory. So we might as well just reference books, if that's the case. So why memorize something that's been totally domesticated and formalized if in textual form it's more reliable? And so... For me, I, I don't really think that that's the most effective medical means because it lacks something really important, which is our own. If, if, if I am just a biobot who's memorized a book, then why am I practicing it? You, I might as well plug them into an algorithm and then have a technician put needles in. So I feel like Chinese medicine offers something more than that. And so it was that line of inquiry that I found to be uh, so enticing. You know, if we're going to call this holistic or if we're going to call this special in some way, then it can't just be algorithmic medicine. Um, and so that looking into uh, texts that, <clears throat> looking into texts that, uh, even by the Chinese standard, were looked at as strange or um, uh, unorthodox. Re is really became interesting to me because I wanted to see what inside of the uh, standard medical um, compendia, like the, like for instance the. Um, the, the, obviously the Bansao Gangmu that we've been talking about, but also the Junjiu Dacheng. So the Junjiu Dacheng has a few talismans in it, a lot of incantations in it, 
and a whole bunch of weird visualizations that occur while needling and some very strange methodologies that really go way, way beyond our notion of a function of a point and just sticking a needle in it and hoping for the best, you know. And so all of that is what really interests me. The, the utilization of um, real, um, not theoretical, like things that are really evident in a plant or, or in an interaction between two people and not just applied theory that we hope works. I put this needle in, I hope it does bank the origin, whatever that means. People don't, we don't even think about what bank the origin means. We just put a needle in and hope it does whatever that's supposed to do. Um, but why, why, it's this why that's the most important, not what, to me. And, and when you ask why in Chinese medicine, you immediately hit a dead end, like, why does this herb do this? You can say, well, it's because it's this taste and temperature and it goes into that channel, but there is a deeper why. And in, in order to find out that deeper why, that's not just the technical why, you have to actually interrogate the plant itself, not just the associated um, qualities that have been imposed on it by um, the textual tradition. You have to interrogate it at the level of its roots and in the soil and its relationship with every other biological and non-biological entity nearby. That's the real why, you know? And so it's in, tho it's in those qualities of things that um, I think that the real magic of Chinese medicine operates, you know? Yeah, I totally hear that. It, uh, I know that we both know Dare Sohei a little bit, who mm -hmm. speaks pretty eloquently about um, bringing an animistic orientation back into the modern, or I'm going to put quotes around modern, you know, the modern conception. Um, and one of the things he talks about is this idea that for him, the primary question of an animist orientation is who and how, or the primary questions, right? So that if we take, and it, and I'm, I'm, it sounds to me like there's definitely um, some resonance with this. Like if I'm going to interrogate the plant at this level that's primary to whatever kind of uh, textual overlay, right, or cognitive overlay, then in essence, I might frame that as I'm relating to the, the plant as a sovereign being and I'm entering into a relational inquiry with, with that plant. But that, of course, since things are you know, fundamentally interconnected, that the kinship relationships of all of the other persons, beings, aspects of nature, whether we would think of them as animate or not, we also have to enter into relationship and inquiry and conversation with those dynamics because that plant is, you know, an expression of all of its kin relationships. Am I in somewhere in the space that you're speaking to? Yeah, no, that's precisely what I'm talking about. Um, because uh, even though, <clears throat> I'm sorry, there's all these throat clearings. You can delete that out. Um, even, the, even the way that we construct a, a, an herbal text in category, etc., I find to be problematic, you know. The, the, the idea that um, 
in in certain in a in a very important Taoist text, the Gohong Baopudza, he categorizes a stalactite in the same vicinity as uh, um, Reishi, because these things are excrescences from the their matrix. Mm-hmm. So a rock and a mushroom for him are no different from each other if they present in similar ways. One grows quick more quickly. One grows more slowly. One is rock-like. One is foam-like. But they're still, they still have a quality that's very much like the other. And so that's fascinating to me that we're really caught in the, the model of genus, species, all of that stuff. But what if we had um, a way of looking at things where we look at the, the, the semiotics of, where they pres- in the way that they present and we look for other types of similarities in, 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 uh, in ways that are much less domesticated. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do that, we can perceive qualities and things that might have literally been invisible just by virtue of the, the, um, the methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're not looking at its fuller context. We're not looking at its relationships all around it. We're only looking at it as a disembodied uh, or like a sample, you know, okay. in, a, in a glass jar. You know, the, the, the typical pharmacopoeia, of course, by, ne- by necessity, they have these, we, obviously we have to do this. But when you walk into, I remember people walking into the herbal pharmacy when I was teaching and they would be, this is so beautiful. They would use terms like that. This is so beautiful and wonderful and natural and whatever. And I would say, this is a mausoleum. Are you crazy? You are standing in the middle of a graveyard. Everything in here is gray. None of it has its original color. None of it has its original smells. You can stick your nose in the jar and smell the ghost of what this used to be, but you are sitting in a graveyard. The beauty is out there somewhere, you know. That's where the pharmacopoeia is really present. Every single thing that we see out there is a, is a, is a medicinal by virtue of it, the fact that well, this is the one thing that we learn. In Chinese medicine, we think of uh, this has a medicinal quality, this does not. The reality is that all things have medicinal qualities. And that's, a, that's something that existed in Chinese medicine previously, which we've sort of, we've come... We've boiled the world down to 500 ingredients. Um, But the reality is that because of the interactions that all things have with other things, they all have distinct qualities. Those qualities can be taken into the body or exert their potentials on the body. Um, And those potentials are defined by their context, not by the chemicals in them. Mm -hmm. And so that's... That to me is something that we can easily reinsert into Chinese medicine, you know, and we don't even have to do that in a way that we have to go on some mad textual journey and have everything translated and all of that stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because, because for instance, like in the, in there, another obsolete substance or category would be, like for instance, we utilize the dirt under a marketplace gateway for um, easing uh, childbirth, and so 
that makes sense. People come and go through this mm -hmm. opening. And so the quality of the dirt under that opening is very different from the quality of the dirt next to that opening along the fence or along the wall. So the wall dirt and the gate dirt are two different dirts. Clearly they are. They're, they're, they have interact, they've been interacted with in ways that change its quality substantially. Not chemically though, at all. The right. two dirts could be identical in any chemical assay, but in those invisible ways, they're absolutely not the same thing. Um, so that's, that's what I'm, in terms of the, uh, the interaction of uh, Taoism, and by the way, the, the name for this, the overall category of looking at medicine in this way we call juyo, um, where we interact with it on the basis of written forms, encanted forms and looking at herbs in this way. Um, and so that, that part of Chinese medicine is what I'm most interested in currently and teaching on. Do you think that, um, how do I even start this concept? Uh, <laughs> we've, re we've reduced our eating culture to like salt, fat, and sweet. There's a little acid in there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Sometimes a little acid. Um, do you think that um, there's, there's so many things happening in my brain right now from what you just said? It's hard to like put it all into a, an actual question, but like um, I see sort of the way that you're describing how we practice herbal medicine at the moment in its very specific parameters almost um an evolution of that that focus of salt fat sweet um because it's um we've you know we we eat like <laughs> and i'm totally guilty of this like quinoa puffs that are like made to be extra crunchy and fluffy and like they're made from good stuff though, technically, but like the only thing that's good about it is that it's, you know, it technically has these things in it, but like, <laughs> it's completely dead. It's been baked to shit. Uh, there's additives to make it taste a little saltier, a little sweeter or something. Um, but, you know, if you went out and actually harvested like real quinoa and ate that and prepared it and ate it, it's a completely different orientation, especially if you were in the Andes or something where it actually is locally grown and, you know, and, and ate it in that environment. So, um, I don't know. Do you feel like, um, first of all, is it, can we even practice a medicine this kind of medicine in today's society like can i actually evil even um like take grow something or find a farm that grows um a farm may maybe even a, a too much of a constrained construct but can i recommend that somebody eat something or harvest something that's like from the earth um to treat a specific issue because i th i feel like um uh, 
I have a, a certain amount of, um, I've seen a certain amount of efficacy from the way that I practice. I went to PCOM as well, right? But then afterwards studied Campo with Nigel Dawes. So I'm a little more, a little differently skewed, but same basic concepts, right? Um, I've had some, you know, some some positive results from treating in that model in that uh, framework, um, and there's because there's, there's a lot of things interlocking things that make sense within that. Um, but I think the deeper truth and the the more the potentiality for uh, a higher efficacy rate is within what you're talking about. This is the same thing as what Tara and I have been studying in in acupuncture. I think that the or and so what you were referencing as well to some degree from the aging of of you know um, the older practitioners um, they don't treat what's just in front of them. You know they treat the spirit, and that's the way you really heal somebody. Um, I I feel like you can get to a higher level of um, yeah, efficacy or, or positive results from a deeper inquiry and a deeper practice like you're talking about. Where do we, <laughs> how do we even do this? You know, I keep thinking while you were talking there, I keep thinking about this, the, 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 the tendency in the Chinese medicine community in, in the United States. I don't, I really can't speak for any other place. Um, we have a tendency in our so-called community um, to celebrate a certain genre of practice of uh, I'm not going to call them a practitioner. So basically you can be a highly esteemed Chinese medicine person by virtue of mastery and memorization of the technical texts of let's say the Shang Han Lun. Mm -hmm. And you can be able to say, you should put three grams of this or 1.5 grams of that. And some of these people who we celebrate are right out of school, who have never treated people, but who have great facility with the dynamics of a particular text. Mm -hmm. So is that a practitioner or is that something else? And so when we, when we look at people like that, what we what we have is a perfect example of someone who has mastered the domestication and the domesticated form of Chinese medicine, but has no, no access to its wildness because they're not actually implementing it. They have no actual relationship to it because you can't have a relationship to it if you've never used it. And if you're, even if they were handling the herbs, it's still uh, deficient because they're they're used they're they're essentially a mathematician but the but the arithmetic is being done with what we're calling herbs but they could if your relationship to herbal medicine is such that you could replace it with numbers then you're just doing math um and i think that uh, the problem with creating math out of chinese medicine is that the only way then to associate the mathematical formula that you've created with a human being is if you also dehumanize that person and turn them into a mathematical formula. Mm -hmm. And, 
And that is essentially the diagnostic methodology that we utilize, which is how can I formalize this human's experience into a, a simplified mathematical process and then come up with, on the other side of the equal sign, a formula that is perfectly resonant with this math that I've created out of a person. And so, the, in some senses, that's really effective, and that's fine. However, the effectiveness of that exists only within the very same identical and parallel to framework of what we call Western medicine. And that's the thing that we try to tell people that we're not doing. Oh, we're so different. We utilize different methods and means, but we're actually doing the same thing. We're just filling in the other side of the equal sign with a herbal formula rather than some pharmaceutical. But we have yet in that context to actually engage the individual where they're at for real. We're just doing the other medicine with different tools, but the the whole thing is identical. And uh, And I think that we need, if we, if we, and, and I think that that's great because I had cancer, I was treated, uh, I've had, and effectively, um, and I've had lots of colds and things like that, that, you know, I have fit myself right into the Chinese medicine algorithm, come up with a formula, treated it and felt much better. That's all fine and good. But there are examples where that's not what we're even dealing with, you know. And I suppose in the realm of psychology and all of that, this is where we really come up against the issue. Like in Chinese medicine, in schools, they suggest, oh, these are the, well, the points they are associated with the spirit or whatever. And I, I you know, and so they, the suggestion is that if someone is enduring a, a psychological trauma or very hard place to be, that using this point on the outer line of the back shoe points is going to, you know, be effective. I, I don't really believe that because it couldn't just be about that point. Something, some other layer has to be there right. in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to get away from the math and into some other thing. And I think that that thing is what you just said. You said something about the spirit, you know, and that I think is the part that exists outside of the periphery or the perimeter of the um, arithmetic of Chinese medicine. You know, one of the things that I, uh, and I, I, for folks that listen to the podcast, I'm going to once again, repeat myself, shocking. Um, But one of the things I say to folks when they, especially new patients, right? They come to clinic um, is that, From my perspective, Chinese medicine as a way of experiencing and understanding the world is entirely process oriented, which means that there aren't things, right? There aren't fundamentally nouns in that orientation. There are processes and relationships between processes. Things are in movement and they can be uh, in movements that are coherent or harmonic or they can be in movements in relationship to each other that are out of coherence or out of harmony and so as you're talking about this i feel like um while that's my orientation to chinese medicine and i certainly feel like that's not something i invented i feel like it's clearly evident from a a perspective in reading and practicing 
it is definitely not ubiquitous, right? And so this orientation that you're speaking to that I think is is ubiquitous in Western biomedicine at this point, which is an entirely materialist, reductive, objectified view of reality um, that is leaning even more into this idea that somehow things are data or information, that if you understand the data, then you understand something other than just the data, whatever that might actually mean, which is, as far as I can tell, what something looks like at a specific moment in time, again, converted into a mathematical formula, which can be very beautiful and elegant, but it doesn't tell you anything about context, relationship, process, or life, in fact. Yeah. Right? And so I... I, I feel like this is um, it's a it's a really big trend in the medicine, and I feel like in an interest and effort to conform to the norms of standardization, higher degrees, uh, being recognized, getting insurance to cover this, that, and the other thing. Like, there's this big movement, <clears throat> which I think some folks are examining, but I feel like in lots of places it's just unexamined as being inherently good right, to push it even further in that direction, where in point of fact, I mean, for me, at least, I feel like it becomes incoherent entirely, the further we lean into that, where it's like, I don't know what it is, but I don't actually think it's Chinese medicine anymore, when we really lean into that. Um, You know, I don't teach anywhere, and I'm not on any political or organizational board so I, I can like say this and people can be upset or not, right? But like, I don't have any power in the field. Um, so I feel really fine saying like, I, I think this is the wrong way to go. I think it, it is, it denatures the nature of the practice. And, um, and I don't think in the long run, it produces greater benefit. You know, even though I'm not saying it's not, effective in certain circumstances as you're talking about right but i mm-hmm. I, I think um it creates a really rigid boundary for where that efficacy is available and it's in a, a narrow and already pretty well delineated aspect of the experience of reality whereas i i think what's so amazing about this medicine as you're speaking to in its wild sense is that in that wildness, it allows for us to be able to enter into inquiry and interaction in the places that aren't so clearly mapped in the modern world, and maybe be able to really be of service for folks who find themselves in territory that is unmapped, or at least yeah. unmapped for them. Yeah, I I see. I I think that one of the one of the things that we can let go of as Chinese medicine practitioners is the idea that we all have to agree because I, I perceive and I predict that there will be a bifurcation in Chinese medicine or maybe more than that, um, where there will be those practitioners who are thinking which herbs will increase nitrous oxide. Mm -hmm. And then there will be those practitioners who are thinking other ways. And I really don't, I'm not, I'm in no, have no contention with, with the, with the reductionist methodology of Chinese medicine. I just, you know, I just don't think that it should be the standardized form. Mm. Um, Because I think that as we, as a species are moving in ways that are becoming uh, some, I don't know, I don't want to get into it, but I think that we should reserve some of our really 
ancient ways, and and I think that they're well preserved in the in the potentials of Chinese medicine um, in ways that are legible and doable, um, and wouldn't have to be creative anachronist uh, anachronisms. You know, uh, we don't have to. The, you can practice Chinese medicine in really exciting ways without LARPing. Um, whereas I think a lot of other Lucas, do you know what he's talking about? I know exactly okay. what he's talking about. For folks that don't, LARP is an acronym for live-action role-playing game. <laughs> and and I think that there are there are other ways that are out there that there are extremely um, anachronistic and racist methods of recreating some other culture's stuff. And I think that Chinese medicine, we don't have to suffer from some of that because the tradition is still alive. Mm-hmm textually and even within the human community um it's well preserved and the linkages are still still exist Mm. so we don't have to make assumptions about what something is but be completely wrong about it you know um and so i think that the chinese medicine community should be okay with the idea that we're, we're going to have completely different potentially even different licensing methodologies and exams you know i i worked i uh, so you said you don't work with any of those organizations i used to work with all of them i used to go to colleges to do their accreditation i was a subject matter expert for the nccaom i did all of that stuff i was a chair in departments at colleges um and I found myself in any and any and all of those um, positions to be in conflict often about, and it's not that I'm a contentious person. I, it, in, in the conflicts were, generally those communities are very congenial, and uh, and I and I really enjoyed the collegiality of all of it. That's that's not the issue. The issue is that it's it's very hard for a group of people who do Chinese medicine to agree on what Chinese medicine is. And the more we try to agree on it, the more dangerous it gets. Mm. I think we should just let it... We're still so young that to, to concretize it all right now is preposterous because we don't even know what we are. We haven't even trans... And when I went to school, the translation... I think there were... It was so minimal, it was ridiculous that we could even have a degree based on the amount of textual um, work that existed. But nonetheless, and I can't even think about the people that came before me, um, working essentially from pamphlets. Uh, So, but now we have a, a greater body of work. I think it's really interesting that we can see there's a lot more diversity in this tradition than we once thought. And I think if we allow it to to be unpruned for a while, we can see what the tendency of its branches would be. Mm. Um, Because we're approaching Chinese medicine like it's some precious bonsai tree, and every single tiny outgrowth is snipped off because it's not according to the plan. Mm -hmm. And we need to let it just be. Because there are people doing wacky things. If If it's so wacky that it can't survive, it won't. This is a Darwinian reality. Let's just let it happen, you know. And I think that the governing bodies are a little too ambitious in their in their um, desire to control this thing. For whatever reason, I don't know. I doubt it's financial. It might just be 
personal issues at a, at a level that's really not evident in, a, in an institutional way. It could just be one individual here and there deciding what they really feel strongly about and really pushing for it. And that could be sometimes all it takes. But I am of the mind that it is a weird medicine and there's a lot of potential for it to be many things instead of one identifiable, you know, object. And I think that that's informed for me greatly by Taoism, because in Taoism, we are aware of um, lineage, which I don't think we're aware of in Chinese medicine. People say they are, you know, like aware of lineage or whatever. But I don't think that that it, it, it's still we're still such a like we're Chinese medicine is like a, akin to a greatest hits album or or a compilation or a mixtape. You know what I mean? We don't. We haven't really delved into, like these, what a real lineage is like. Uh, would be like, jazz in New York City in this neighborhood in this club during that year when you can really see a salon creating new and interesting things that are very much unlike all other things. Um, and in Taoism, lineage is like that. We do things that are so specific doctrinally to us that our textual body actually has to be, is, is distinct from other textual bodies in the Taoist lineages that are right next to us, you know? Mm. And I think that Chinese medicine is very much like that, but it's as yet unrecognized because we're still trying to be the, the big compilation or mixtape. Um, but uh, I think that if, and I do see a lot of specialization forming in China. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm going to be the fertility specialist. I mean specialization in people in Chinese medicine are now specializing in Qing dynasty authors one at a time, for instance. And that is exciting to me. And we, more relevant. Totally. And, you know, yeah. we, we were raised in Chinese medicine to think that, oh, you have to... In Chinese medicine, there is a, there are so many examples of... Um, uh, when you're, what what is it called? When you're you're reading something, and in this book it says the left kidney is, and this one says the right kidney, and those mm -hmm. discrepancies we're told in school, oh, you just have to accept all of these things. They what they didn't say is that was an idea that existed in this time and place and text, and that's an idea that existed in this time and place and text. If you look at it as monolithic, these things look like they're a problem, but they're not a problem. If you're following a lineage that lineage will have a whole host of ideas that are distinct from things that are in another book. And so we don't have to swallow that stuff as like, because when you do that, when you accept it, what you're doing is you're saying, oh, it, it looks like Chinese medicine doesn't have its act together, you know, because it's like, how could we have things that are the exact opposite statement and whatever, quote unquote, both are true. They're not both true. One is true in one context and one is true in another context. And I think that that allows us so much richer an opportunity to explore because then you can say, why did this one say the opposite of that one? When did they say that this was the opposite? What was happening in the Song dynasty that's distinct from the Tang dynasty? You know, how is the Song dynasty different from the Tang? You know what I mean? In between the Tang and the Song, we have the Mongols. Everything changes, you know? 
Chinese political identity, Chinese national identity changes. So we see lots of things happening in various contexts. And if you don't understand the history, then some of those things are not evident. And then so we create a, a timeline that's more like a tangled web than an actual um, series of events with, with evolutions within it. I find that's what um, I think a lot of people come out of a TCM, a modern TCM education, and they feel like they feel like they're caught in this interconnected web that they don't see where the strands are coming from. Yeah. And like, I'm just supposed to accept all these things that I still can't rock. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not going to go practice because I need to pay back those student loans. You know, whereas like, <laughs> it made me think of um, one of my teachers in school, Jason Ginsburg. I don't know if you know him. Oh, but, Jason. Uh, Jason and I shared a desk for years really? in, in, in Turo. We both talked. Great. Yeah. He, he's that guy who's, um, you know, when someone asks him a question, he's like, he knows all the lineages so well that he's like, well, how do I, I can't even, I have to give context. <laughs> you know what I, mean? like, I can't just like answer that question. I know it's yeah. a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Do you have 20 minutes? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think about this when, you know, uh, it makes me want to study more and more, which is great. Um, so that I can more accurately answer questions. Um, but it also makes me feel like um, when I answer questions, it complicates things when I answer, try and answer questions in the clinic. Do you know? Because people don't necessarily want to know all this, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, it's a little more complex than this, but if you accept that this is where they were at this time, you know what I mean? It's like, can you, you add a point for this. my allergies? <laughs> it is the most reasonable and the most unreasonable question at the same time right yeah, right exactly. like it's absolutely and, and then of course you know no <laughs> but right we can absolutely do something to help with your allergies right let's talk about That's how really you experience so them true. right like well like allergies Right. Well, I know this might sound weird, but you know, when people use that word, they can mean a lot of different things. Some people mean their eyes swell and itch. Some people, their nose runs. Other people, they can't take a breath. Some people feel like their chest is tight. Some people, you know, like get digestive issues. Really? I thought allergies were just, person says whatever their set of symptoms are. Like, totally. That is absolutely, or sometimes not at all, an allergic response to something. Yeah. Right. And so I think that um, I think what I love about that and why I bring it up is the opportunity. Uh, and and while this is not perhaps as a subtle and nuanced kind of conversation <clears throat> as entering into dialogue with a plant, um, because you know the person can speak to me and I can readily observe certain behaviors that are in that I am also human, maybe a little less occult, right? Uh, for many of us than, than coming into relationship with the plant, though I know plenty of our colleagues might feel that the plants are easier to understand than our fellow humans. But uh, there is this opportunity for this kind of creative and um, emergent practice that has the potential to benefit 
right? This being who, since we're in this kind of clinical imaginary situation, is there asking for support and help. And in terms of this piece that you were speaking to about how we can not LARP or look for a creative anach creatively anachronistic way of practicing the medicine, but lean into the wildness. I feel like this is one of these places where um, it might not seem quite as wild as some of the sympathetic magic and like more radical resonant connections, but I feel like it's a very grounded and practical way that really anybody who's practicing any kind of medicine potentially can lean into that wildness right, of what is actually emerging in this moment? What is the potential in this moment for us to enter into an authentic relational experience with this person that's, that I have the opportunity to sit with, right, who, who is in need of support? Um, that's, the, I mean, I, I, that's the heart of it all. I mean, that's the and we've created some pretty elaborate constructs around that basic form. Yeah. I want to pivot if y'all are cool with that. And Josh, I'm curious to know, <clears throat> I have an idea and maybe it's unfounded um, that your personal practice as well as your teaching uh, deeply inform this conversation that we've been having on the medical end of things. And I'm curious to hear you speak a bit to how your own practices and how your own spiritual journey um, ground, develop, support this kind of inquiry within medicine. Yeah. Well, can you just say that, can you ask that question in a one-liner? Sure. Talk to me about how your personal practice informs your work as a physician. Got it. Um, my personal practice is uh, in some ways an extension of my work as a physician and vice versa. I, I, I think that there is a, a continuous loop between those two places and um, it goes something like this. Wanting to uh, wanting to um, be better at medicine, I realized that, or I realize I'm in a constant state of, of, of <laughs> awakening, that my, my presence and my um, both in, in two, it's a two-way street too, my ability, my ability to perceive the patient and for them to perceive me um, is, is a very large part of the clinical interaction. Um, 
in that I have to read them and they, to, in order to what we do, what we call a diagnosis. And I, they have to read me in order for there to be what we call a treatment. So the relationship exists in those two dynamics. And I think that we can call them lots of different things, like I just suggested, diagnosis and treatment. Um, I don't have control over the, the, the patient's ability to communicate with me. But I do have control over the apparatus that I have for perceiving them, which is to say, even an opaque patient, if I were able to hone my lens, I would be able to perceive features even in the, even in the um, uh, relative existence of them as being opaque. If, if I work on perceptibility, then I'll be able to see them better no matter how they're presenting or how they're choosing to present. And if I am cultivating ways in which um, I am capable of interacting with them, not on the basis of how I want them to perceive me, but on ways of being honest so that they perceive what they want to perceive in me, um, then the interaction is much smoother. So it really boils down to um, honesty. And I think that honesty at, it, at its root is about uh, the diminishment of noise. And um, that is, to a great extent, the, the result or the aspired to result of Taoist praxis in terms of our contemplative um, uh, body of practices. And so I, I can't practice medicine if I'm creating a narrative about a person that is based on my uh, artificial um, projections, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. there, are, there, are, there is a semiotic reality to um, the interaction with a patient. They talk in certain ways, they dress in certain ways, they walk in in certain ways, they either get lost or can find you. All of these things play into the development of our estimation of someone whether they're on time, whether they're not, whether they're the, 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 the degree to which they engage their own hygiene. These are all the things that we perceive before they even open their mouth. Um, the, the demeanor they have, the lexicon they use, the, the word choices that they have. Uh, there's so much happening before we even get into the level of meaning from the actual transmission of language or whatever. It's, it's so deep. And so... There's so much room in all of that for us to make mistakes based on um, deciding prematurely, uh, I get it, there are this or there are that. We want to dump people into these compartments. And that's, that is actually what diagnosis is. It is it, it's, it's, it's putting someone in the right container, but there is subtlety in that, or there's, you know, it can be, that can be a very gross process or a very subtle one. And so I think that practice, Taoist practice in particular for me, is the way in which I um, am attempting to be more spontaneously interactive with, with people 
um, by virtue of uh, culling and cutting back the ways in which I operate based on prejudices, etc. Um, and so, ultimately, Taoist practice is about attempting a very ziran or natural or thus self-becoming state, right? Obviously, this non-dual status or realization, which of course plays out weirdly when we're considering interactive um, engagements, but um, which is to say, realization on the cushion is very different from getting back up and walking around. Um, and so I think that for me, the way that my practice informs my Taoist practice, contemplative practices inform my medical practice is in um, uh, deconstructing my prejudices most fundamentally. Um, and that means a lot of things, but I think I, I could unpack that more. But really, my prejudices begin with the way someone texts me. My diagnosis mm -hmm. has already begun when someone texts me and they use the letter U instead of Y-O-U. You know what I mean? These, these things, is this a young person? I start to go into these various places, and so that, that to me is unacceptable um, because... I don't know the, the, the reasons for which someone chooses to do things in the way they do, but I can't assume that it's what I think it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that I've seen my, in myself and my colleagues that the, the abrupt, arrogant, I know what's going on as soon as they come in the door type of thing, does, in the end is not really a great way to, to operate. Um, because that is rooted in an estimation of ourselves that's then played out in, in this weird power struggle between us and our patients. And so I, I, the Taoist practice is essentially um, takes the wind out of that arrogance and it, it puts me behind my patient rather than in front of them. And uh, that's the most profound um, part of, of how Taoist practice has changed the way I do Chinese medicine, because I actually am doing Chinese medicine as a Taoist now versus doing Chinese medicine as a quote-unquote doctor or something like that. When you say it puts you behind your patient rather than in front of them, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. So one of our precepts, our fundamental precepts in Taoism, I, that was actually a reference to one of Lao Tzu's three main precepts of not putting oneself first. And that, mm -hmm. how we're, we're supposed to interpret that. Um, and, it, and when you interpret that, it can mean so much. But basically, when my needs are after their needs, when my, when, 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 when my assumption of the interaction with the patient, the assumption is that we are in a place of knowing, they are in a place of unknowing, and we're going to figure something out for them. I actually mm -hmm. find it more interesting to, to perceive the patient as educating me on their predicament. Because then they're in the role of the teacher who's teaching me what's going on with them. I'm not mm -hmm. going, you know. Mm -hmm. And so by putting myself after them, they're allowed to spin their narrative. 
But if I interject my own assumptions into their narrative, then it's like editing their story while it's being typed. And that's just weird. And so I've learned through Dallas practice to sort of let them tell their story to me mm-hmm. because that narrative is actually where they inadvertently or intentionally, I don't know, can, they can derive some really interesting metaphors um, that they don't, that they, that, that just enter the space. And then we realize we're talking about something that we're not talking about or whatever. And then uh, this reveals layers of their predicament that might not have been the usual result of 10 questions and, and whatever, you know. So uh, one of the reasons get... why I love palpation and Twena is because I feel like it opens up that possibility space for stories being expressed um, in ways that are surprising um you know where the body like often i'll say to folks that you know this is a collaboration and we're both here working together creatively to help support you in this process and there is an intelligence in this room that knows what needs to happen but actually it's not an intelligence that either one of us can access through our cognitive mind right your body and its innate wisdom knows exactly what needs to happen. And we're both going to do our best to really listen to the one in the space who actually can, you know, make a, make a real diagnosis and express what needs to happen in treatment. Um, so I, I, I think that that, because when you said uh, putting yourself after your patient, I, I actually had this image of putting yourself like, as opposed to sitting in front of them, sitting behind them, like sitting in their history, right? Also sitting in the ancestry Mm. of what brought them to this moment, which I don't know if that's part of what you mean, but it's, it struck me strongly as I was hearing you speak about that. No, no, that, that is definitely in, in, in the mix. Yeah. Um, for sure. The, the hierarchy that is, reiterated in the in the typical you know we're in the office they enter the space Mm -hmm. it's our space they've Mm. come into it all of those things are already setting up a a paradigm that um i'm pretty uncomfortable with yeah you know um and so and then there's the other stuff depending on who's coming in the door i'm male i'm white i'm i'm sort of like an old guy whatever, you know, there's like all of that other stuff too. So there's so much, there's so many layers that are already in the way of, of fluidity that if we don't, in, if I don't intentionally um, try to do my best to, uh, that stuff has to play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's those things you can't, mm-hmm. it's just in the air, but we don't have to perpetuate it, strengthen it, and you know reinforce it. And so I think that consciously putting ourselves behind the patient can set up a very palpable environment where that other stuff is sort of like, you know, it it, it tends to crumble a little bit at least, you know. Well, I would even wonder if maybe it goes from being in the way to simply being in the mix, 
right? If we can really become present enough to like all of these different dynamics and expressions, which are, there's always some set of dynamics and expressions, right? So on the one hand, we can think of them as being obstructive, but on the other hand, you know, all experiences are composed of other experiences, right? So whether I'm in the woods or whether I'm on, you know, the corner of 14th and third Avenue, right? There, there is this kind of emergent context that if I can attend to and be in a, uh, as direct of a relationship to, as I'm currently capable of, right? It is what it is rather than it being what then I impute upon the experience. I'm not making any claims to having this perfected, let's be clear, but I, this to me is still, at least as I'm understanding what you're offering, what it serves you. And I would certainly say it, it serves me to lean into is right. What is, can I lean into the possibility of just being with things as they are arising and not imputing any more onto them than is absolutely necessary at this moment in my development? Yeah, you know, struggling with it is just as destructive as reinforcing it, whatever it might be. And I think that, that exactly, if you just allow it to be there and, and ultimately to disempower a thing is neither to struggle against it nor to reinforce it. And so if there are things that are, that are obstructions, we don't pretend they don't exist. We don't try to tear it down. I mean, it would be really weird to overtly try to say to someone, here's why you should be at ease in this conversation, you know? (laughs) Um, So it's, I think that uh, for sure, not, not an acceptance in the way of accepting it and substantiating it, but accepting that it's there is really an important feature of all of this. So, you know, we can't, certain things we can't, alter um, in ways that are, well, we can alter anything, but there are certain things that we can't alter in like a physical way. We can, but we can sort of like allow it's, allow it's one, uh, what was at once a very robust membrane around a thing to become more porous. Mm. And so in the, in the leaking edges of those things, they become a little less defined. And I think that that's, can only happen by letting it go rather than like either shoving it in a corner or, or anything other, any other intentional means t- tend to make things weird. Mm. Yeah. Like, um, I don't want to give any specific examples from my practice, but let's say, you know, you have, um, like, uh, there's a you know there's a lot of cultural tension between um, various different groups all over the world at all times. Yeah. Um, but let's say that there's one of uh, let's just one of the older and classic ones is a you have a British practitioner and an and an Indian patient. Do you know? And so there's maybe there's maybe that's a real tension for them. You know the the colonization the years and years of colonization and then the relief of that not being too long ago. Um, and you know the, the maybe the British practitioner being in a in a position of authority, you know, um, there to heal the patient, quote unquote, you know. Um, but if that it actually doesn't exist between them as pe- as people, 
as, as you know, individuals, they can just kind of let that, maybe they address it or something, or maybe it just comes up in conversation, but just sort of floats in the air and, 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 and that's, it, it is what it is. We don't necessarily have to keep talking about it. It's not part of the treatment per se, or at least the target of the treatment, but not addressing it allows it to just settle. Is that what you guys are saying, basically? Yeah, and I also think that, yes, in a way, but I think that we can be cognizant of that dynamic and we, and I think that subconsciously oftentimes it's possible that we re-exert those realities, that we, that if we're conscious not to, our slightest changes in demeanor can be signals to people that we are playing those roles. You know what I mean? Mm. The way we look at them, the words we choose, the inflection of the voice, like all of those things, we know when we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Our and, lab coats. Yeah, all of it. And so whether you choose to embody those things or not, I think is, uh, is, is happens by layers of nuance. And, and, mm. and I think the more subtle we become aware of, the, the way that our mind works, the more aware we will be of the ways that we're exerting those paradigms because mm. we create them. They're, they're abstract. They don't really exist. You know, history exists. Sure. But the fact that history could enter a room could only happen by the dynamic in that room because the, the, and it exists within the two individual minds in that setting. Um, but because there's no other basis for it whatsoever, really, anyway. So if we seek, if we're looking for a way to dismantle things that are really only the product of minds, then we have to work with the mind. Um, of course, there are other dynamics at play when we look at it at the societal level. But I'm talking right now about the interaction of two individuals in a space. Not, mm-hmm. not the financial, other, you know, political structures that exist out there that are clearly um, unjust in ways that need to be dismantled intentionally and specifically. I'm talking mm-hmm. about the way one person looks at another, the way they sit, the way they talk, the words they choose, and the way they allow the other person to engage. Those are all the things that we do have control over. Um, in those ways so it's potentially something that we will need to table for another conversation because i this this may be kind of a big question but the thing that i become curious about as you're talking about the dynamics that exist within mind are when we were speaking about the wild nature of chinese medicine and the nature of spirit and some of these kinds of magical and resonant sorts of ways of engaging with reality i mean i have to ask like certainly there's the dynamic of mind but there's also the dynamic of the other beings that might be accompanying each of the individuals in that room that maybe are more than just the construct of my thought you know that are unresolved um, aspects of history that are accompanying us yeah so 
Yeah, that's a part two. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if so, you want to take a stab at it, Josh, please. I mean, I'm well, not trying to limit. I'm not trying to, you know, like at the end of the 90 minutes that we had sort of agreed on, like <laughs> drop the big one. But I'm, I'm very curious mm. about that set of dynamics because I have this feeling that you know something about that question. <laughs> so um, one, one of my, my main Taoist lineage is an exorcistic lineage. Uh, and that is exactly what we deal with. And, uh, and people are, can feel free to discern what the word ghost means and all of that. But those are the entities that we deal with in that, in that context. And, the, and it's medical in the sense that there's a person that comes in. But between that person and myself, um, there's a series of... Um, things that happen where we discern who else is in that room with the two of us and uh, how that entity is to be dealt with or um, collaborated with. Um, and so, yes, for sure, it goes beyond the, uh, those, the two minds in the room. Yeah. There are other, other possibilities for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, instead yeah, of going deeper one. into that, that let's, awesome. let's <laughs> put a pin in that particular yeah. topic for uh, a hopefully future conversation. Um, Josh, are there any things that, as we come to a close, you want to say, you want to share with folks that are listening? Um, any final-ish for now thoughts? No. Um other than to thank you both for this wonderful talk and the, 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 the really cool way that you do what you do, which is to allow someone to, like myself, like I just did, ramble incoherently. <laughs> Not incoherently. I followed it. I followed it. <laughs> uh, but it was, it's such a neat... Uh, the 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 way that you have done this was really refreshing and i want to thank you both for that it feel it feel what you do here feels really um not that i not that i need respect but it feels very respectful of of whoever is in the seat that i'm sitting in for sure mm -hmm. to not be um it does your questions didn't anticipate me they didn't cage me and they didn't um presume anything you just have a great way of allowing someone to express themselves and so thank you for that it was great oh, you're that's the biggest compliment totally thank welcome you. yeah that's really what we are aspiring to is just that yeah. so that's well, great to you, hear you, you do it well <laughs> we're, we're practitioners of tangential meditation <laughs> <laughs> within the adjacent possible <laughs> right oh, that's great um, cool well it's been a total pleasure to talk with you and i am completely in earnest and sincere about us finding a time to continue this conversation because I feel like there's a lot more to mm -hmm. dive into and explore together. So if you're yeah. open to that, we'll yeah. make it happen. And I, I think it would be fun to have another conversation with a little more specificity sure. and like mm. less rambling on my part. Yeah. I think that that would be kind of cool sure. to, to really get into. We didn't really talk about the nuts and bolts of Taoism or anything here. But, no, and but I, I would love to do that which is kind of yeah. you know, how i'm feeling like we're ending this is like great now we have a lot of scope mm -hmm. and it would be really yeah. interesting to talk about like what is 
what is your lineage like? What is this exorcist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lineage like in terms of medical? Pro like, and I recognize that some of those kinds of questions may not be entirely appropriate to answer in a forum like this, but whatever is publicly proclaimable, I would be very sure. interested to understand, you know, how are you working yeah. contemplatively? Like, what are the practices? Yeah. yeah. What is the praxis? What are the practices? So, yeah, great. We can do all of that. Awesome. Yeah, I would Excellent. love to. Yeah. And then we'll make it happen. Cool. Thank you. Thank all you. Right. Thanks again, Josh. Really appreciate it. Yeah, total yeah. pleasure. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. Sounds good. Okay. Bye. Bye. Take care.